Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item. Backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
Hello, it's your host, Rick Houston, and welcome back to the Scene Vault Podcast. With me again is my co-host. I'm not going to call him my boss because he fussed at me last week. <laughs> <laughs> but with me again is my co-host, Steve Wade. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Rick. I tell you what, Rick, good to be here with you again. Absolutely. It's good to be back. Now, we have got a ton packed into this episode, and I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction and hearing the reaction of people to this episode when it comes to Bud Moore. Well, in addition to uh, his fame as a car builder and an engineer, Bud Moore is probably more noted in NASCAR for his heroics during World War II. He's a very, very young man, but he saw action all the way through Europe and, uh, be honest with you, did some very heroic deeds that have really gotten on to be a part of today's NASCAR lore. So uh, that sets him apart right there from several other, well, in my opinion, all other team owners. Steve, what have we got up in this episode? Well, not only do we have uh, Bud Moore, but we've got the uh, famous 1995 night race at Bristol in which Dale Earnhardt cemented his reputation as the intimidator by knocking Terry Labonte out of the way on the last lap and attempt to win the race. Notice I said, attempt to win the race. (laughs) It's quite a fascinating story. That's going to be our issue of the week. We're going all the way back to the August 31st, 1995 issue of Winston Cup scene that covered that race. And there was a lot more going on at that race other than the last lap scramble between Dell Earnhardt and Terry Labonte. Yeah, there was. There was a quite a, uh, what, what are you going to call it, a post-race show in the confrontation between Rusty Wallace and Dale Earnhardt, who were buddies. But they got in a little bit of a scrum after that race. <laughs> I got to tell you, somebody that we both know and love a whole lot was right in the middle of that deal. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. That sounds like you're talking about yourself, but I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Who, me? No, 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 no. Never, never, never. <laughs> Steve, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Bud Moore. Bud, as honored as I am to be sitting here talking to you as a NASCAR Hall of Famer, I am truly humbled by your service in the military. Well, you know, uh, being Veterans Day coming up and uh, all the guys that was in the service, you know, and all this, especially in World War One, and then, uh, then things came around, World War Two, and all this, and... Uh, Myself and Cotton Owens, he was in the Navy, and Joe Eubanks, another friend of mine that drove the Modified to me back then, uh, he was in the Navy, and I got drafted, and uh, I turned 18 years old on the 25th day of May, 1943, and I got my draft papers on June the 1st, <laughs> so they took me down. Happy to, birthday. <laughs> they take me down to Fort Jackson, you know, to be inducted in, uh, I wanted to go in the Navy because uh, Eubanks and Cotton was already in the Navy, and uh, so I went over and talked to the Navy guy, and the first thing he asked me, he said, have you got a college education? I said, how can I have a college education? I just got out of high school a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back then, you know, they only ran, went 11th, 11th grade, so we only had 11th grades, and we had just, really? okay. just finished high school, and uh so, like I say, uh, the school was over on June the 
second, I believe it was, and I got my draft papers on June the first. <laughs> so anyway, it was it's something, you know, and uh, going having to go into the army and do what I did. And I finally told them, they said, "Well, you'd make a good marine." I said, "No, just put me in the regular army," and that's what they did. And I was in the infantry, and I was in the 90th Infantry Division and uh, 359th Infantry Regiment, and uh, I was in D Company, First Battalion, and. Heavy weapons company, they call it. We had water-cooled machine guns and 81-millimeter mortars. And this was a deal, you know, at, uh, with all the training we went through and all this. And uh, knowing all the stuff that I went through in World War II, and uh, especially, you know, uh, hitting the beach on June the 6th, 5 o'clock in the morning, one of the first waves going in. And our regiment was attached to the 4th Infantry Division, which made the assault, and we all went in at the same time. And... Uh, our other two regiments, the 357 and 358, didn't come in until D plus six. And uh, going in there on that day, and it's like they got drowned that day because the Navy guy driving the landing craft, he didn't drive all the way in where we were supposed to be in knee-deep water, and we wound up was in water about over our head. And, and I got off, I had a 51-pound tripod on my back and also my backpack and all this, and I stepped in a shell hole and trying to get get out of that water and went under and I liked it got drowned and finally I did get out of there and I just headed straight across the beach got on the other side and I sat down behind a sand dune still sp- trying to get the water spitting up the water and everything get where I could breathe and it, 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 it made us turn you know 19 years old and all this and I said I couldn't believe what was happening with all the guys were getting hurt and people you know and all this of what was going on but anyway going through the whole, whole war like I did and Main thing I'd say, uh, I really appreciate the deal. I was with George Patton, you know, the Third Army, and I went to Bastogne with them and all this, and we cleared them guys out up there. And it just, uh, you know, with all the stuff we went through and uh, getting wounded five times that I did, I wasn't completely wounded where I didn't report back to the front lines. I got shrapnel wounds and all this stuff, and they. What was so amazing, they'd send you back to the aid station. I'd be laying, you'd get in my foxhole, and uh, they'd have an air bust over, you know, and then yeah. we finally decided what was going on. We'd, I'd dig my foxhole, and then I'd dig back underneath and put to get about a foot of dirt on top of me. So really? I, I could roll up underneath it. And But still, you know, when you're out in the field and you're advancing and all this stuff, shells land, and you get splattered with, with shrapnel. It was so amazing. <laughs> they send you back to the aid station. We get back there and they'd pick the shrapnel out of you and do this, and and uh, they'd paint it with methylate, that old red looking stuff, and uh, put a band aid on. And send you right back to the front lines. I think maybe I said, well, Lisa may be back there for a day, but that didn't work. <laughs> but only wow. other time I got wounded real bad uh, was with this machine gun. I got shot through the right hip, and that was on February the twenty second, nineteen forty five. And I was out. Of, I was out of service then until I reported back to my company on April the first. And then, uh, what's so amazing? My lieutenant, which I, I was an instrument noncom, and uh, they had promoted me from being a first gunner. I went to laying all the gun positions and all for the for our four machine gun squads and all this. And we pulled up in this German hospital yard and just pulled up there and the Germans had it zeroed in they started shelling at their own hospital you know and all this and they blowed that jeep about out of under <laughs> so me and the lieutenant we had to go back to the, they sent us back we had to go back to the hospital again and we got back there and uh, I hadn't been back in, in, the, in the 
on the line but about two days when all this happened and anyway they picked the shrapnel out of me and him both and put them band-aids on sent us right back again our jeep driver got a little bit hurt a little bit worse so they had to sort of operate on him to get one piece out of his stomach i think it was but anyway he survived and all this and you know the people have asked me several times you know says uh why haven't you gone have you ever gone back over to since the war and i said no so why is that i said well i left too many friends of mine over there and all this and i said when the 50th year anniversary came around union oil offered to send me and my wife over there and have somebody in a limousine pick us up and start down at utah beach and go all the way across europe just about we went because the war was over i was 12 miles out of pilsen czechoslovakia and uh so I told them, I said, no, I, I, I don't want to go back over there. And they says, why is that? I says, well, I just feel like it, I wouldn't know what was happening, wouldn't know the towns or anything else, because all of them, we blowed off the map. I wouldn't know what, what they were looking like now anyway. Yeah. And I said, I don't think that that'll work. And I said, the biggest thing, when I left for coming home in 1945, I got on, that, on the USS Excelsior. was a boat coming back to from back to the United States and I when I walked on that game plane I looked up to the Lord and I said Lord if you just get me back these 5,000 miles I gotta go and get me back home I promise you one thing I won't be back and I ain't never went back and I just feel like you know I, I might have enjoyed going back and my wife probably would have enjoyed going over there but like I told her, I said, you know how many nightmares I had before, after the war and all this stuff and how much you used to wake me up and beat on me and do everything else. And I said, I just didn't feel like if I went back over, I might start all that again. So that's another reason I didn't want to go back. And, uh, you know, war is war and war is hell. I'll put it that way. And for a lot of people don't realize it and just how bad it can be. And uh I know it's like the guys over right now fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's pretty bad when uh, they don't really know who they're fighting and all this stuff. But in World War II, we we killed everything that moved. If it was a dog or a bird or, or a person or who, it didn't make any difference. And uh, that's the same way the Germans were. They do the same thing. And uh, it just it's just a whole different situation. But... I feel for them guys over there right now, and uh, I don't think we've got any business really being over there the way things are. And So, anyway, they're going to get it probably straightened out and get it done here in a little while. Who, who knows? But along with your service on D-Day, uh, you were involved in four other major battles. You were in the Battle of the Bulge, and you also received, along with your five Purple Hearts, you also received a couple of Bronze Stars. And one of the stories that I've heard is that you and another fellow single-handedly captured a, a German regimental headquarters. Yeah, we uh, we jumped off on the attack, and uh, the lieutenant, he's, he was going on one way, and um, he said, more, I think it'd be safe. Y'all take this Jeep and go around in, and he showed me on the map, and I had the map looking at it. So we got up on top of this hill, and uh, there's a house down at the bottom of the hill, and I seen a German soldier running it, so I had a water cool machine gun mounted on the dash of that Jeep. I started firing on the windows and everything on that house, and one German soldier run out the backside, and I seen him go one way, and this other one come out with his hands up. So we captured him, and we had him sitting on the front of the Jeep 
going back, and uh, we went on top of the hill, and we supposed to made a right-hand turn, but we didn't. We kept going straight. And that, <laughs> Oops. That was it. We went out there maybe another three or 400 yards, and we run into this block building there, and we seen a couple of German soldiers run in and out of it. So I fired up. I fired machine gun at them, you know, around the windows and everything else. And finally, <clears throat> they... Uh, the soldier we had captured, uh, the jeep driver, he could talk a little bit of German and this and that, and we told him, go up there and get them out of there. If they don't come out, we're going to bring some artillery in there and just blow that building down. And finally, uh, we sent the, the soldier we had up there, we captured in there to get them. Finally, here they come back out, and, and i never seen, like, I don't know how many enlisted men there were, and had five German officers. And, I think a total is about 21 or 22. I don't know if I remember now exactly, but here they all come out of there, and I couldn't believe it. So what was, so, what was, what was funny was the fact that we lined them up two or two, and we, we knew we done took the wrong road, so we go back, and we finally got on the right road going back over. Did you have to ask them for directions? No. no. <laughs> we, we found, uh, after I knew where we, after we'd done, done it, we done made, didn't make the right turn, so we turned and went back the right way. <clears throat> They had already took this little town ahead of us, you know. <laughs> so that building, I fired on the first and set it on fire, and it was burning. And uh, finally, when we got back over there, and the lieutenant, my lieutenant said, Moore, what in the hell was going on over there? I said, you sent us in a bunch of hell over there. I said, you see what we had right here, you know? <laughs> he couldn't believe we had all these German soldiers and had all these officers and everything. And uh, wow. he said, well, what, that's what all that racket was going on over? I said, yep, that's what it was. <laughs> it was just me. <laughs> just me. Yep, me and the Jeep driver. It was something. But the other per- other bronze star I got was for uh, the D-Day landing and uh, being on the front lines. Uh, I think I was on the front lines about eight months and a half without being evacuated. So somewhere in that order. Uh, you mentioned you actually crossed paths with General Patton. Is that correct? Is oh, that yeah. Correct? I, saw, uh, I saw General Patton at least three or four, three times I know on the front lines. And uh, the biggest thing, you know, about going to Bastogne and uh, they, when they had the 101st Airborne all surrounded up by Romeo and all that and kicking the daylights out of them. And Patton, we just made the Moselle River crossing and Patton pulled us back, our division back across the moat back and we was in this little town. And... Uh, Patton was standing on the courthouse step with a big microphone, and he he briefed us, said, Now, I know you boys ain't had a hot meal or anything on this part, and you, you've been doing this and doing that. And he said, We got a bad situation. We got it 90 miles away, and uh, Romeo's got the 101st surrounded up there in Bastogne. He said, We got to go up there and get them out. And uh, he says, We got to leave. He said, We're going to leave in 45 minutes. We're going to kill every SOB on the way. And. <laughs> We did, and we went up and got them out and all this. And uh, I saw Patton a couple of other times. One time we had took this town about two or three times, and the Germans would take it back. And we were sitting there. I had a machine gun sitting up on the side of the road, you know, guarding it on a defensive position after they'd done run outside that town. <laughs> anyway, here come, I heard somebody say, here comes old blood and guts. I, I looked, and here come Patton driving up the road. He passed by me within about 30, 40 feet. Mm-hmm. He went on up there to headquarters, and about, I guess, 30, 45 minutes later, word come down and says, we got orders, we're going to take this town again. And he said, well, damn sure ain't going to give it up this time. So we didn't. We took it this time. We kept it. <laughs> <laughs> 
What was it like when the Germans actually surrendered? I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. Well, you know, when the Germans, when we were going across, the, when we crossed the Rhine River, going up into Germany and all, and had the Germans so disorganized and they started giving up and all this stuff, we we knew the war was, was over partially and all this. And uh, like I say, we kept going and we never stopped. And uh, we hit a few hot pockets for the Germans still, you know, and once they seen that uh, they had no choice, then they gave up and uh, all of this and I mean, it was a happy feeling for all the American soldiers to know that we done won the war and all this. And like I say, we met the Russians uh, right out of Pilsen, Czechoslovakia. We were 12 miles out of Pilsen. We met the Russians. We shook hands and all with the Russian soldiers and all this. And then that was on May the 2nd or May the 3rd in uh, 1945. And uh, the thing was, uh, word come down that uh, the war was over May the 8th. So that was one of the biggest thrills that uh, most all the soldiers had, and we did some celebrating, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I wish there were some way to get across the the smile that spread across Bud Moore's face. I bet you did do some celebrating, and and it was well-deserved. And uh, all this, and what they did, uh, they pulled us back in a little town that was about 20, 25 miles out of Pilsen, out of... uh, off across the line, you know, back in the Germany called Widen, Germany. And we put us on occupation there, you know, and this little town was all oh, had about four or five thousand populations all that were and this and that and they had some had some pretty good army barracks there and, and uh this and that. So we took over those barracks and all this, you know. And so we were there, you know, doing occupation in for all this this time and uh when it come time to come back home and to be discharged and all this stuff. We didn't know we was going to get discharged, but but when it, we figured the war was over and it's going to send us now to Japan, and we figured, you know, with Pat and Ray and so much cane about different things and all this, and they, they said, we might was going over and fight the Japs. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we figured that's where we were going to go, but the, when they dropped the atomic bomb over there in Japan and the war was over there in August, I think, August 7th, 8th or mm-hmm. something along in there, and, and, and that was another big thrill, you know, to know that that war was over and this and that. And then they said, well, we're going to start sending people back home, soldiers back home and all this, and they sent us back on the point system. So we got so many points for being in, the, in combat for the months we were in. We got points for so many. I was on five major battles over there, and we got five points, I think, for each one of those, and then we got five points for each Purple Heart and five points for the Bronze Stars and five points for all, every month we was in combat. So when it come time, I, was, I had as much points as somebody had been in the Army about five or six years and all this, and I was one of the first ones to come back, and uh, I was real thankful, you know, that uh, I was going to get to come back that early. Sounds like you almost got sent home before you got there with that, <laughs> with that many points. <laughs> Before Steve and I jump into the conversation about Bud Moore's interview, I did want to take a moment and talk about the Patreon and PayPal campaigns that we do have going on. Patreon.com slash The Scene Vault Podcast. Help us out to the tune of $5 a month, and you'll get one of my books, either Dell versus Daytona or NASCAR's Greatest Race. $10 will get you both. And 
Once we get to 10 patrons, a total of 10 patrons at the 5 or $10 level, I will give away a copy of the July 12, 1984 edition of Grand National Scene that covered Richard Petty's 200th race. It's absolutely an historic issue. Or if you would prefer to help out with a single contribution rather than on a monthly basis, you can do so at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And one other thing. On iTunes, give us a five-star review and a written review, and once we get to 50, and we're pretty doggone close, once we get to 50, I will pick a name out of a hat, and that person will receive a copy of every single NASCAR book that I've ever written. So folks, if you can, if you feel so led, if you like this podcast, if you like what Steve and I are doing on this podcast, consider helping us out on PayPal or Patreon. Steve, I will never forget, ever forget, doing that interview with Bud at his house in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And it was kind of cool because he had already been named to the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And I called his son up, Greg, and I called him and said, you know, would it be possible to talk to your dad for the podcast? He said, sure. Daddy remembers you. I remember you. Come on down. We'll be glad to have you. That was a kind of Southern hospitality that I thought was really cool of Greg and Bud. That's the way Bud and Greg were, by the way. Uh, I I cannot remember a time when Bud Moore was not willing to talk to the media. Uh, he was very outgoing, very, very informative. His son was too. And uh, it really lent a lot to, to be able to cover races that way and have a personality like Bud Moore. To count on. And to have the first thing out of the box that we talked about be his service in World War II, and on D-Day in particular, yeah. and the Battle of the Bulge in particular, Steve, I will never forget that feeling because I don't think I've ever been more in awe of a conversation than I was in those two hours with Bud. Yeah, and you know what? That separates Bud from all of the team owners, in my opinion, and I've said this before, that his military service being as heroic as it was, and let's face it, interesting to hear, as you well know, uh, certainly made Bud a, a different character when it came to individuals in NASCAR. He had a great deal to say about what went on in World War II on, at his level, and he, no one else had that, at the, had ever had that. And uh, again, I'll repeat, that did separate him from the others. But he had a lot of great auto racing tales, too. Well, that he did. And we will share two more segments in the next couple of weeks where Bud does talk about his NASCAR career. But this conversation obviously has stuck with me because Bud was the real deal. And I'm not going to name names, but I once did research on a person in NASCAR who is going around telling tales about his military service. And at some point, my BS meter went off and I got to doing some research and it was absolutely one of the most fascinating stories that I had ever worked on because the guy said that he had been a POW in Vietnam and escaped. And so I went to Mike McGrath, who was the president of the Vietnam POWs Association, and he said, ask the guy two questions. Number one, ask him the date of his capture. Hmm. Because if he cannot tell you the date that he was most terrified in his life, chances are he's lying. Number two, ask him the names 
of the people that he was being held with. Because evidently that's one of the first things that you do is you memorize the names of the people that you're with. So if some way, somehow you get out, you can tell who you were with and they're still alive. So long story short, the guy was full of crap. Mm. But Bud Moore is absolutely positively the real deal. Absolutely. Everything he did has been documented. And uh, obviously you can't tell stories like Bud can tell stories and not have them be true. I mean, it's just, it's clearly obvious he did it. He was part of it. And uh, that, again, is a very interesting thing about Bud. And one more time, it separates him from the other team owners. Here's a good uh, example of my point. Every year at Rockingham, spring and fall, there was a old school bus out in outside the track, campers in it. Now, what exactly are you fixing to tell went on in this bus? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I won't go there. But, it, <laughs> but this entire bus was decorated with paintings. Yeah, okay. See, yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one that you're talking about. And, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, things like War Hero and all that. What other team owner ever got a treatment like that? I mean, it, it, it was so obvious that he was so well-respected among the fans for what he had done that a couple of them went so far as to fully decorate their NASCAR traveling bus with all things but more. So uh, it's, that, that, to me, is very significant. Steve, we were talking before we started recording. In the fifth issue of Grand National Saint ever printed back in July, I believe it was July of 1977, there was a story written by your friend and mine, Bob Moore, yeah. about this very thing. So this is something that was that was very widely known, well known about his service. And also, I think you and Tom had actually written a story similar to that about his World War II experiences, I want to say on the 40th anniversary, in sometime around yeah, 84, 85, right. somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah. So the thing about Bud, though, was it wasn't something that he brought up. It wasn't something that he wore as a medal on his chest. It wasn't something that he bragged about in the garage. Other people knew it. Other people brought it up. And when they did, Bud was very open about talking about it. But he didn't go around... Broadcasting. No, he did not. He certainly did not. He was very, very uh, not. I guess he was very somber about that situation. You got to remember something. You, you go around wearing that on your chest and talking about it and talking about it. You're you're doing a disservice to those who are with you over there and are not with us anymore. And I think Bud realized because he was part of it the seriousness of it, of it all. Uh, it, this was not something that was going to be a subject for storytelling. This was a very, and let's face it, grim time. And so Bud never really wanted to promote that. Uh, most uh, ex-soldiers with us today, uh, they do the same thing. They were there. They knew what it was really like. So I think that's part of Bud's thinking. But when you asked him about it, he told it to you straight. I think one of the most poignant moments of that interview was when he was talking about getting on the troop carrier to come back home after the war was over. 
And he said that he kind of closed his eyes and made a pact with God saying, if you can get me these last 5,000 miles or so back home to South Carolina, I won't be coming back to Europe. Yeah, that sort of um, goes along with what I said earlier. Yeah. Uh, we can talk heroics all we want. And, and, and the, the people who lived it, however, knew how it really was. And I'll beat myself. It was grim. It was not pretty. It was war. And war is hell. So nobody really wants to talk about that up front. Bud's difference was he told you his story. And he didn't tell it like he did all of this by himself. Right. Yeah. So for sure. And on the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings, he was actually offered the chance to go back to Europe and see how the continent had reconstructed itself and come back from the war. And he said, no, no, no no way. Not surprised. Not surprised at all. So, Steve, the thing is about Bud is that we can truly, truly appreciate his service. And he had some definite feelings about the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and everything. And... If anybody can speak to those situations, Bud could. Absolutely. And you know why? Because he lived it. He lived it. He not just saw it. He lived it. And that has a great impact, I think, on any human being. And it certainly did on Bud. Bud Moore, thank you for your service, sir. Rest in peace. Steve, I got to tell you that this issue of the week idea that we came up with, I think is pretty cool because it's jogging our memory banks. Well, you're exactly right. <laughs> I take a look at that issue and then I said, I don't remember that happening. <laughs> and worse yet, I say, I don't remember writing that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The highlights are obviously easy to remember because the August 31st, 1995 issue of Winston Cup scene covered that year's night race. And everybody remembers Dale Earnhardt getting into the back of Terry Labonte coming off turn four, Terry wrecking, but still winning the race. So there's that overall highlight. And people still talk about it to this day. I was looking at Facebook and Twitter yesterday and people were, you know, going back and forth yeah, about sure. it. What do you remember oh, about that event? I remember that uh, when I came away from uh, the Bristol night race that night, or better, better yet, early that morning when I finally got out of there, uh, I said to myself, this is, this is going to be one for the ages, the way this panned out. Eh, let me tell you, it, it, it started early because it, yeah. was, it yeah. was on the 32nd lap that Dale smacked Rusty and turned him around. And boy, you could hear the buzz from the garage area all the way up in the press box. And it was like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and the fans, half booze yeah. and half cheers. So uh, NASCAR took a dim view of it, and Earnhardt got the black flag and was ordered to go to Pitt Road, put him way back at the end of the field. Well, during if he didn't come plowing up that field, then he comes in for a pit stop. And I don't remember exactly what happened during that pit stop, but it was a very slow one. And again... He back at the rear of the field. <laughs> yeah. So now he comes charging forward and charging forward and charging forward. And guess what? He gets up to Labonte on the last lap. Now, up in the press box, we're saying, there's only one way he's going to get around Terry on the last lap. And we all knew what that was. Sure enough, in the fourth turn, he hit Terry in the rear. And Terry spun, slapped off another car and then went and hit the inside wall backwards. thing about it was, though, 
when he slid off that inside wall backwards, it was over the finish line. So therefore, yep. he won the race. He won the race. That's Absolutely. Right. And, yeah. You know, Dale's uh, Dale's valiant effort, or in some cases, people might think foolish, and others might think uh, outright dangerous. <laughs> uh, move to win the race uh, ultimately failed, and uh, you know Terry was very philosophical about it. He said, "I don't care that he did did that to me. I won the race." So in the final analysis. Uh, it did two things. It gave Labani a victory, which he wanted, and he deserved. He led a lot of that race. And the other thing is, it may have uh, cost him a car and may have cost him a few fans, but er Earnhardt didn't care because it cemented his reputation as the intimidator. And who can forget the sight of Terry Labani bringing his beaten, banged up car into victory lane, smoking, crumpled up. looked a lot like David Pearson's car coming into victory lane after the 76 Daytona 500. And you're right. Terry got out of the car and said, okay, Dale got into me and blah, blah, blah. But I won the race. So that's what all that matters. A driver will tell you, he doesn't care how he looks when he wins the race, you know, sideways, upside down, smoking, doesn't matter. The win is everything. And then Dale Earnhardt brings his car to the gas pumps after the race, and somebody assigned me the sidebar on Dale Earnhardt. And so he got out of the car, and I'm standing there in the scrum with Dale Earnhardt, surrounding Dale Earnhardt. I was literally touching shoulders. We were that close side by side. And Winston Kelly was doing the post-race interview for MRN, and Dale was being very, you know, open about the night he wasn't upset he wasn't you know spun out and half turned over like so many people are after a race and then all of a sudden i hear this thump and you could hear it on my tape i looked up and i saw rusty and he was just livid my first reaction i kid you not my first reaction was why is rusty wallace throwing a water bottle at me <laughs> well, on that, I could understand. <laughs> you know, because that was the first time in NASCAR that I had ever been involved in a post-race scuffle. You know, I can imagine uh, about how anxious you might have been in that particular situation because the scrum now involved not only Earnhardt's people, but also here comes Rusty and his people, and there is a... a a big massive cluster of of people with Dale and Rusty in the middle. And from the press box of course I couldn't hear what they were saying. But I turned over looked over at my friend Tom Higginson and say, Pappy, I don't believe this is a meet and greet going on down here. <laughs> I immediately jumped on the radio because there wasn't a scene photographer around and I start keying the mic going, get down here, get down here. Rusty and Dale are into it. You can look, there's a YouTube video of that post-race scuffle and I'm the guy in the red shirt yelling on the radio, get down here, get down here. (laughs) (laughs) And Phil Cavelli and Chad Fletcher never showed up. Come on, man. (laughs) They probably couldn't get through that mass of humanity. (laughs) I tell you what, that was probably one of the most memorable moments of my early Winston cup scene career. Well, the thing is that I think a lot of people forget about that four years later, in 1999, the same thing happened. 
and Dale made his move on Terry again in the last lap. And again, he did more than rattle his cage. He turned him around and this time went on to win the race. But Labonte, being the uh, quiet philosophical sort he is, said, hey, you know, okay, uh, Dale turned me around. Hey, it happens. And he never really got too upset with Earnhardt over that particular situation, which surprised me. But those who know Terry Labonte is, he doesn't get very excited at all. In that 1999 night race, Terry wasn't exactly innocent in that whole deal because Darrell Waltrip had spun him coming to a caution, I think less than 10 laps to go. He went in, got fresh tires, came out, chased Dell down and gave him a couple of pretty healthy shots himself. So, you know, he didn't wreck Dale, but he, <laughs> he, he was rattling Dale's cage too, as well, best he could. At that time in Bristol, that was about the only way you could pass. Now it's changed now. But at that time, the, the bump and run was uh, a routine method at Bristol. You know that the August 31st, 1995 issue of Winston Cup scene had a lot more going for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> they out Terry Labonte off the of turn four, and Labonte still winning the race. Or the water bottle that Rusty threw at Dale's, more than that. That issue contained uh, some information on Ernie Irvin. Now, you remember Ernie got hurt at Michigan pretty badly. And at this particular time, uh, his, his team, uh, well, business associates, whatever you want to call them, were shopping his comeback race. In other words, trying to get a little extra in the old hip pocket for Ernie to select a comeback race. And I don't know if they ever got anything. Rick, seems to me you wrote that story. You remember that? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, number one, there, there are two things about it. Number one, I remember that being just a huge controversy at that time. And it was getting a lot of publicity and, you know, everybody had opinions. There wasn't social media around. And if it had been, oh, it would have been All over, a yeah. million times worse. But I remember that being a big controversy at that time. However, when I picked up this issue the other day, I didn't remember it. Huh. I absolutely did not remember the controversy and the big story about, you know, Ernie's team shopping things around and all that kind of thing. So I think that kind of says something about what we consider to be important. You know, what we're arguing about today on Facebook and on Twitter, you know, it's the most important thing in the world. It's the most important issue that has ever been in NASCAR. Right. And 20 years later, I didn't remember. <laughs> it took a while to come back to me. Well, it, 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 there was an issue. Uh, but if you stop and think about it, it's a good move. It's a very good move, in my opinion. Because you, I don't care what anybody says, all right? Race teams are in this job to make money. Uh, they cannot lose money and continue to operate. So if they have an opportunity, however morbid it may sound to you, to shop around uh, a situation where they think they might be able to get some added income, in one sense, all it is is a good business practice. And I can understand that. But in another sense, you have to wonder, you know, let's talk about the ethics here. Is this really something you should be doing? 
that would be the argument, I think, on social media today. Well, regardless of whether or not the argument made any sense whatsoever, there would still be an argument on social media today. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, another thing that went on at Bristol that weekend, Jason Keller's crew attempted to use portable air supplies for their pit stops, for their air guns. And once they brought those bad boys out, they were on a backpack. And once they went through that first pit stop, I, I think NASCAR was absolutely all over them before the first lug nut ever fell. <laughs> well, absolutely. And NASCAR's thinking, I believe, was, uh, number one, it's an unfair advantage. And, and number two, okay, if uh, we allow this, then the other teams are going to adopt it and their expenses are going to go up. And uh, that's not going to put them in a very healthy situation. Of course, there are some people who would say, well, NASCAR objected to it because NASCAR didn't think of it first. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. But realistically, no. They had to make, they had to draw a line in the sand quick because it was, number one, unfair advantage. And number two, expenses would go up because other teams would adopt it. And NASCAR didn't want that. Now, who was Jason Keller's crew chief at that time? None other than Steve Addington, who was Kyle Bush's crew chief. For quite a long time. You know, Steve has always been the innovator. Maybe NASCAR might not have appreciated it too much that night, but, you know, at least he tried. You got to give him points for trying. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they get paid to do. And, uh, you know, years ago, back in 1995, I could look you right in the eye and say there's not a legal car out there. (laughs) I don't know if I can do that today. One other item that, appeared in this issue that I kind of had to laugh about. There was a photo, it was a standalone photo, and it was David Pearson talking to his protege, Buckshot Jones. <laughs> now, there's a name. Boy, I tell you what, the time is bad. Buckshot Jones, yeah, I remember him racing in what was then as the Bush series. But I did not, if you ask me, I could not have ever told you. It was way back in 1995 we ran that piece. Because I was the Bush series editor, for Winston Cup scene, I had the, okay, I'll call it good fortune. (laughs) I had the good fortune of covering Buckshot. And the cool thing about it was I was friends with him. And I also had a really good relationship with Randy LaJoy. It was always kind of cool to be able to go to Buckshot and go to Randy after one of their many run-ins and be able to talk to them both. Now, Buckshot and I, we're in the, his lounge, and we talk. Steve, I guess we talked for an hour or more, just shooting the breeze. I was trying to find a cool place in the Bristol garage for a little while because it can be very, very hot at Bristol in August. And we just shot the breeze. You know, we had been talking about him and Randy and, you know, them having trouble and everything. And the last thing that I said, I said, here's the deal. If you get in trouble with Randy again and you wind up getting fined, you owe me the same amount. Oh, Really? Yes. <laughs> and? Steve, that night. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, that night was the very infamous run-in that they had at Bristol where Randy got into Buckshot and Buckshot wound up, crashed there in turn one. I can remember it like it was yesterday, watching Buckshot limp around to the back stretch and come in to turn three. I got on the radio and I was yelling. I said, guys, you need to watch this. It's fixing to happen. And sure enough, 
he drove up into the side of Randy as he came by under caution. He got fined $5,000 for that. Mm -hmm. Steve, I have yet to see my money. (laughs) Oh, I'm not surprised. (laughs) But I I will add one thing. It's very good that you had that kind of relationship with a driver, you know, because that proves that we look at this sport as more than just a job. Uh, you look at it as a as a place to where you have not only associates but you have friends, and sometimes those friends aren't so easy to make when it comes to competitors. I think it's more difficult today than it was back then. But you had that type of relationship. I had two or three of them, and it certainly benefits your career but more than that. It just benefits being there and doing your job to to be able to have that kind of association with a competitor. It's very good. I'll go one step further and say this. It wasn't like I was a member of the Buckshot Jones fan club or anything like that because you go back and read my stuff, and I don't think anybody would say that I pulled any punches. I think my record for curse words in one quote came from Buckshot. I mean, it was I had a bleep car and bleep tires and then bleeping Randy LaJoy got into my bleeping left rear bleeping corner. <laughs> yeah, I'm hip. <laughs> yeah. But by the same token, I also had a good relationship with Randy. Right. One of my fondest memories in my time in NASCAR was an afternoon spent at Daytona. It was raining. There was nothing going on at the racetrack. There was nothing to do. We were just waiting out the rain and several of us wound up in the lounge of the NASCAR hauler. Really? And <laughs> Randy LaJoy got to telling stories. <laughs> I've heard his I've heard his stories. And let's just say that the funniest story that I have ever heard in relationship to NASCAR came out of Randy LaJoy's mouth that day, and I can't repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is kind of my memory of NASCAR. Those stories that you hear when the guard is let down. Yeah. I think certainly everybody in that room understood that it was off the record and it would never see the light of day. I would share the story if it was shareable. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I understand. But yeah, it's those kinds of memories that make our time in NASCAR special. That's what you remember the most. Uh, When you talk about a NASCAR career, what comes to mind to you most is the uh, relationships you built up with competitors and uh, the uh, atmosphere surrounding them and uh, and you together. It's very unique. Well, folks, that about does it for this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. I appreciate you listening. Steve, thank you for being here and sharing some of your stories. Rick, it's a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, talking with you on this show just keeps bringing back memories. And I love to tell stories about those memories because I think it's something the fans really enjoy. I would like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centire Media. You guys make this podcast possible. Also, I would like to thank my best friend from high school, Joey Stepp, and his band, Frantic Radio Beings, for the theme music. And until next week, we'll see you then.